0: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is the time. James Blinn producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering. Today we're going to talk with Jem and Alan Fadling. You might note that subtle difference between Jim and Jem. Her name is spelled G-E-M. She and her spouse, Alan Fadling, are the co-authors of What Does Your Soul Love? Eight questions that reveal God's work in you. They'll be joining us later in the 5 o'clock hour. We'll also take a look at what meteorologists who met over the weekend have to say about Oregon's winter. Will it be stormy or snowy or windy? What might we expect? El Nino? La Nina? Well, it's pretty unremarkable what they've come up with, but we'll share it with you in the latter part of today's program first to look at some of the day's headlines. President Trump's successful operation to take out Islamic State leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, rather, sent uh, Democrats scrambling on Sunday as several top party leaders who had charged that the White House had no real plan to combat the terror group following the uh, U.S. pullout in Syria were proven wrong. In a dramatic sign of how the messaging apparently backfired, NBC's Saturday Night Live ran an ill-timed sketch suggesting that Trump had created jobs for ISIS just hours before the president held a news conference announcing al-Baghdadi's demise. The sketch aired around the time the two-hour late-night raid in northwest Syria was underway rather remarkable that Saturday Night Live is relevant in all of this. Through the day on Sunday, the Democrats, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senate Foreign Relations Committee ranking member Bob Menendez, and former Vice President Joe Biden, seemingly settled on a new strategy. They praised the troops who executed the historic raid, while pointedly avoiding complimenting the president in any way. It was a stark contrast to the way they specifically praised President Obama after he announced Osama bin Laden's death in May of 2011. Congressional Democrats also lamented that they they were not informed in advance of the operation while the Russian military was told so that their airspace could be used. The president suggested Sunday that Democrats in Congress who've been conducting an impeachment inquiry against him that has been fraught with leaked information to the media were not notified before the raid because of concerns they might compromise the operation. With leaks. And the Washington Post on Sunday published an eyebrow raising headline that Abu Bakr al Baghdadi was an austere religious leader. The obituary, written by the Post's national security reporter, Joby Warwick, detailed al Baghdadi's rise to power in ISIS from what the paper described as his origins as a religious scholar with uh, wire glasses. Well, the headline. Was changed a few times. Washington Post vice president of communications, Kristen Carrata Kelly, said regarding our Baghdad, uh, Baghdadi obituary, the headline should never have read that way. And we changed it quickly. Still, John Hannity called the initial post headline sick and repulsive and said the newspaper needs to be educated on the evils. Well, I won't say all that he said. Anyway, the true legacy representative Katie Hill, Democrat out of California, announced her resignation on Sunday after a string of reports shining a negative light on her personal life, including a reported affair with her legislative director that sparked a House Ethics Committee investigation. Hill tweeted on Sunday evening, It is with a broken heart that I today announce my resignation from Congress. This is the hardest thing I have ever had to do, but I believe it is the best thing for my constituents, my community, and our country. She's expected to step down by the end of this week. The congresswoman last week had fought back against reports of an affair with the congressional staffer, as well as reports she was in a so-called thruple. I have no idea. Relationship with husband Kenny Heslip and a campaign staffer, the scandal escalated uh, last as a um, compromising photo of uh, she and others surfaced. The massive Kincaid fire in California's famed wine country burned at least 84 square miles. And forced the evacuations of about one hundred and eighty thousand as firefighters reportedly dropped a containment dropped in containment from ten to five percent on Sunday night. The entire towns of Haldsburg and Windsor in Sonoma County, north of San Francisco, were under mandatory evacuation as the evacuation zone stretched from Haldsburg west through the Russian River Valley to Bodega Bay, according to the Sonoma County Sheriff's Department. Governor Gavin Newsom has declared a statewide emergency. The partisan Washington Nationals crowd was not pleased when the president was shown on the ballpark's video screen during Game 5 of the World Series between the hometown Nationals and the visiting Houston Astros. As fans greeted him with a crescendo of boos in the time inning of the uh, ball game. in addition, fans mockingly yelled, Lock him up, a chant Trump supporters began in 2016 against his opponent, Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton. The Astros beat the Nationals 7-1 to to take a 3-2 lead in the series. Game 6 will be played on Tuesday night. And the longest serving black congressman, John Conyers, has died at 90. Uh, Obama judge has uh, ordered the Department of Justice to turn over Mueller grand jury material for Democrats impeachment probe. And federal uh, the federal deficit has increased 26 percent to nine hundred and eighty four billion dollars for fiscal year 2019, the highest in seven years. The. um, Uh, Democratic National Committee is raising its threshold for candidates to qualify for the December debate. And the Chicago teachers' strike enters another week after talks failed. Biologically male NC2A runner named conference female athlete of the week has many women, biological women, steaming. On this day in history in 1858, Roland Hussey Macy... Opens his first New York store at 6th Avenue and 14th Street in Manhattan. I don't know how you would keep that straight when your streets are named the same. They're both numbers 6th and 40. I suppose if you live there, you figured it out, but I find it very challenging to imagine 14th Street. Sixth Avenue, but that's just me. On this day in history, 1886, the Statue of Liberty, a gift from the people of France, is dedicated in New York Harbor by President Grover Cleveland. On this day in 1922, fascism comes to Italy as Benino Mussolini takes control of the government. On this day in 1940, Italy invades Greece during World War II. On this day in history, 1962, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev informs the United States that he's ordered the dismantling of missile bases in Cuba. In return, the U.S. secretly agrees to remove nuclear missiles from U.S. installations in Turkey. And finally, on this day in history, 1976, former Nixon aide John D. Ehrlichman, he enters a federal prison camp in Stafford, Arizona to begin serving his sentence for Watergate-related convictions. He would be released in April of 1976. So from October of 76 to April of 1978, he remained in jail. Al-Baghdadi, ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is dead, according to the president and other sources. He took over ISIS after his predecessor, Abu Omar al-Baghdadi, was killed in 2010 detonated a suicide vest, killing himself when U.S. Special Operations Forces entered a compound in northern Syria where he was located. This is according to the U.S. defense officials. No U.S. Special Forces operations were uh, hurt or killed in that raid. U.S. forces did a terrific job. A U.S. military source told media outlets, this just shows it may take time, but terrorists will not find a sanctuary. The same source said that the biometric tests confirmed that it was indeed Baghdadi. The compound was located near the Turkish border in northwest Syria's Idlib province, a known terrorist stronghold that served as a home to groups linked to al-Qaeda. Al-Baghdadi had long been suspected to be hiding in the Idlib province. General commander of the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces touted an historic operation in a tweet Sunday morning Crediting joint intelligence work with the United States of America. Regarding the claim of Kurdish assistance in the operation, a U.S. military source simply said the Kurds have always been good partners. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. Brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin & Currency. I want to remind you, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Jem and Alan Fadling. What does your soul love? Eight questions that reveal God's work in you. It's a book about transformation and how God does that in and through us and uh, some of the things that we can do to cooperate more fully with that uh, that end. Well, I mentioned earlier that... Um, uh, oh, Baghdadi was uh, killed over the weekend when Islamic State spokesman Abu Hassan al-Mahajiri, uh, he considered a potential um, a successor to the terror leader, was also killed in Syria in a separate attack by U.S. forces, according to the senior State Department officials. The uh, prospect was that immediately on the death of al-Baghdadi, there was going to be an announcement and this name was uh, likely the one to be announced. Well, Mr. Um, uh, Muhajir, he has been considered the number two to al-Baghdadi, according to officials. Well, the second U.S. military operation took place in Turkish-held Jarabulus in northern Syria, a three-hour drive from where al-Baghdadi was killed near another border town with Turkey. Hours after the U.S. Special Operations Forces raided al-Baghdadi's compound in northwestern Syria, the top Kurdish leader for the Syrian Democratic Forces, uh, followed the um, uh, tweeted following the previous ops, a senior assistant for al Baghdadi is called Abu Hassan al uh, Muhajir. And I apologize, I'm certain I'm mispronouncing many of these names. And uh, again, I apologize. Anyway, it was targeted in a village named Ain al Bat uh, near Jawabul city. The mission was conducted via direct coordination with SDF, Intel, and U.S. military, apart uh, the ongoing ops to hunt ISIS leaders. Well, al-Baghdadi was killed during Sunday night's daring raid in Syria. And after years of intelligence gathering, U.S. Special Operations Forces had no doubt uh, the mutilated body of the man killed during the raid was the long-sought ISIS leader. U.S. Special operation Forces employed new technology and DNA testing to positively identify al-Baghdadi's uh, remains almost immediately. And while the commandos had visually identified Tim before he bolted down a A dead-end tunnel with three children where he was found whimpering and trapped before detonating a suicide vest. That wasn't enough. Various accounts uh, have told of his death in the past only for him to surface yet again. This time they tell us they are certain he has in fact uh, been identified. Former Michigan Representative John Conyers, the longest serving African-American uh, member of Congress and founder of the Congressional Black Caucus, who resigned in 2017 amid sexual harassment allegations, has died in his sleep. Detroit police said the 90-year-old former congressman, a Democrat, died at his home on Sunday, apparently of natural causes. Conyers became one of only six black uh, House members when he was, uh, um, uh, won his first election back uh, by just 108 votes back in 1964, the race was the beginning of more than 50 years of election dominance. Conyers regularly won elections with more than 80 percent of the vote, even after his wife went to prison for taking a bribe. He served for years as chair and ranking Democrat of the House Judiciary Committee. But after a nearly 53 year career, He became the first Capitol Hill politician to lose his job in a torrent of sexual misconduct allegations sweeping through the nation's workplaces. A former staffer alleged she was fired because she rejected his advances, and others said they'd witnessed Conyers inappropriately... um touching female staffers or requesting favors. Conyers denied the allegations, but eventually stepped down, citing health reasons, saying his legacy couldn't be diminished after 53 years in office. He unsuccessfully sought to have his son take his seat in 2017, saying my legacy can't be compromised or diminished in any way by what we're going through now. He was speaking to a Detroit radio station from a hospital where he'd been taken after complaining of lightheadedness back in December of that same year. This, too, shall pass, he says. My legacy will continue through my children. Throughout his career, Conyers used his influence to push civil rights. After a 15-year fight, he won passage of legislation declaring the Martin Luther King Jr., Uh, birthday, a national holiday, first declared in 1986. He regularly introduced a bill starting in 1989 to study the harm caused by slavery and the possibility of reparations for slave descendants. That bill never got past the House subcommittee. His district office in Detroit employed civil rights legend Rosa Parks from 1965 until her retirement in 1988. In 2005, he was among 11 people inducted in the International Civil Rights Walk of Fame. Conyers was born and grew up in Detroit, where his father, John Conyers Sr., was a union organizer in the automotive industry and an international representative with the United Auto Workers Union. He insisted that his son, a jazz aficionado from an early age, not become a musician. Well, the rest, as they say, is now history. And former Democratic Senator Kay Hagan, who had been ill for years due to a tick-borne illness that caused brain inflammation, died Monday at 66. Hagan, a moderate Democrat who represented North Carolina, beat powerful incumbent Republican Elizabeth Dole to win her seat in 2008 before losing to Senator Tom Tillis in 2014. Colleagues and family honored her service in statements on Monday. We are heartbroken to share that Kay left us unexpectedly this morning, her family said in a statement, according to the Charlotte Observer. Kay meant everything to us, and we were honored to share her with the people of North Carolina whom she cared for and fought so passionately uh, For as an elected official. Most of all, we already miss her humor and spirit as the hub of our family, a role she loved more than anything. Nobody could light up a room and make people feel welcome like Kay, end quote. Hagan was hospitalized in 2016 with encephalitis, a uh, swelling of the brain. A family spokeswoman described the cause as a virus that spread by ticks from animals to humans. Citing a doctor who had been treating her, test results indicated Hagen contracted what's known as virus. Her recovery was slow, though her family said that she had improved significantly in mid 2017. Her family said she clearly understands what people say to her and recognizes her friends when they come to visit. Earlier this year, she made a public appearance at the groundbreaking of a control tower at an airport in Greensboro for which she helped secure funding during her time and office. Senator Richard Burr issued a statement on Hagan's passing on Monday, saying, Brooke and I deeply are deeply saddened by the sudden and untimely loss of Kay Hagan, he said. Kay dedicated much of her life to serving North Carolina, and she will be remembered for her tireless work on behalf of the home and the people she loved. In our time as Senate colleagues, we worked across the aisle together, he a Republican, she a Democrat, frequently on issues that we both knew would determine what type of country our children would inherit from uh, conservation to our common defense. She tackled everything she did with a passion and a sense of humor that will be missed. Our thoughts and prayers are with her family. The Greensboro Democrat served in the Senate for six years, lost her seat in 2014, and U.S. Representative Greg Walden, the top Republican on the House Energy and Commerce Committee and Oregon's only Republican in Congress, announced today that he will retire in January of 2021. Political First reported Walden's retirement, adding that the veteran lawmaker said he believes he would have won re-election in the second district, which stretches across the eastern and central Oregon, based on recent polling, strong fundraising, and the backing of his wife and family. I am confident I can earn the support of second district voters for another term. I'm also optimistic that a path exists for Republicans to recapture a majority in the House and that I could uh, return for two more years as chairman of the House Energy uh, Commerce Committee, Walden said in a statement given to news outlets. But I also know that for me, the time has come to pursue new challenges and opportunities, so I will not seek reelection to the U.S. House of Representatives, he added, nor election to any other office, but instead... I will close the public service chapter of my life, thankful for the friends I've made and the successful work we've done together. In 2018, Walden won his 11th term in Congress by 17 percentage points in a three-way race in what was otherwise what would have been a tough election cycle for Republicans. He faced off against Democrat Jamie McLeod Skinner, who is currently running against two high-profile lawmakers for the Democratic nomination for Oregon Secretary of State. Walden is 62, became the 17th House Republican and the fourth GOP committee leader to announce plans to retire this election cycle. Of Representative Walden, Oregon Right to Life's Executive Director Lois Anderson said... Representative Greg Walden has a strong pro-life voting record for which we are thankful. He has uh, was endorsed in 2018 by the National Right to Life Committee. In 2017, he voted in favor of the Pain Capable Unborn Child Protection Act. He also voted for the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. Congressional District True is a strongly pro-life district. Um, and Oregon Right to Life will do everything in our power to ensure their new representative in Congress is also pro-life. Thirty-one minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety-three point nine KPDQ.
2: 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the second hour of today's program, we'll talk with Jem and Alan Fadling. They're co-authors of What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. Representative Katie Hill, a Democrat out of California, announced her resignation on Sunday after a string of reports shining a negative light on her personal life, including a reported uh, affair with a legislative director that sparked a House Ethics Committee investigation. In fact, that whole House Ethics Committee investigation was the result of Mr. Conyers and allegations made uh, back then. He'll uh, tweeted on Sunday evening. It is with a broken heart that today I announce my resignation from Congress. The congresswoman last week had fought back against reports uh, with the uh, Congress uh, of a, a, an affair with congressional staffers, as well as reports. She was um, involved in other unsavory conduct. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi issued a statement saying Congresswoman Katie Hill came to Congress with a powerful commitment to her community and a bright vision for the future and has made a great contribution as a leader of the freshman class. In fact, many said that Pelosi was grooming her. As one of her favorites among that uh, class, she has acknowledged errors and judgment that made her continued service as a member untenable. Pelosi wrote, we must ensure a climate of integrity and dignity in Congress and in all workplaces. Well, rumors have been swirling for the last few weeks that several notable individuals are considering throwing their hats into the Democratic presidential ring. Headlining that group of potential new Democrat uh, candidates in the 2016 election uh, is 2016 election loser Hillary Clinton. Should Clinton actually decide to jump into the crowded Democrat field, she's better um, do so soon. The Washington Examiner notes that candidates hoping to compete for early state nominating contests must consider filing deadlines which begin in early November, giving potential candidates only a few weeks to announce their candidacy create any campaign infrastructure and move forward. The more pressing question many are asking, however, is not when Clinton will enter the race, but why she would even consider entering outside of Clinton's own Uh, claim that she could beat President Donald Trump again. Well, you'd have to beat him once to. Anyway, the fact that left media pundits have even entertained the idea reveals that they're worried the current field of Democrat candidates has little chance of defeating Donald Trump in 2020. Well, maybe. This also may demonstrate a growing divide within the party between the radical leftists who increasingly push the party toward outright socialism and the garden variety establishment Democrats who favor big government programs but still embrace capitalism. Democrats may also worry that a majority of Americans don't want what Elizabeth Warren is selling. However, as the examiner's Emily Larson observes, any candidate who jumps in at this late stage also runs the risk of frustrating Democratic voters, already overwhelmed by a large field of presidential hopefuls. We'd venture to guess that it appears Clinton's aim is to gin up her own base of support, whom she will then encourage to vote for the candidate she endorses. Only time will tell, and there's lots of speculation in the air. Jarrett Stepman, uh, speaking of speculation, makes the point that California's blackouts are a self-inflicted mess. Don't just blame PG&E for the new dark ages in the country's largest, most prosperous city. He writes, California, the richest state in the nation and one that's often portrayed as the progressive harbinger of the future for the rest of the country, has been hit with its latest third world style disaster. On top of high poverty rates, skyrocketing homelessness, rising crime and the return of medieval sounding diseases, the state has been hit by a series of rolling widespread blackouts. Millions of Californians, many of the most uh, in the most densely populated parts of the country, have had their power shut off by the utility company Pacific Gas and Electric. The scale of these blackouts is unprecedented in the history of California. The local utility initiated the blackout in an effort to limit the potential for mass wildfires, rather, which ravaged the state in 2018 and bankrupted the company. Exposed power lines and infrastructure make the likelihood of sparking fires much greater in places where there uh, is ample dry fuel. More on that later. Still, the fires are back this year. The blackout, which has hit cities throughout Northern California, is causing chaos. Businesses have shut down. People can't go to work. And in some blackout areas... Curfews have been put in place to prevent crime. It is, in a word, a mess, which is actually two words. Well, much of the blame for the blackouts has been hurled at the utility, with some even turning to vandalizing PG&E offices and shooting at its trucks. Well, it's easier to criticize PG&E, which hardly looks good in those. this whole mess. This is a lot of blame to go around, however. And no, it doesn't have anything to do with climate change. Poor land management has been a major contributing factor to the uptick in massive wildfires in the West and around the country. California is particularly susceptible. Fires need heat. They need fuel. At certain times of the year in California, the state is hot as uh, dry winds blow in from north uh, Nevada, a combustible environment for fire. That's hardly a new situation in the Golden State. Unfortunately, there's now far more fuel in their forest. Uh, That's built up over decades because of a change in forest management strategy. Former California Assemblyman Chuck DeVore, who now lives in Texas, has done a great job in highlighting this issue and explaining how the blackout crisis was largely caused by politicians. Renewable energy has been prioritized over reliable infrastructure, DeVore wrote recently in The Federalist, while there has been an uptick of vulnerable power lines to connect distant wind farms to urban centers. PG&E shifted its priority to the overpriced renewables at the behest of politicians. The Wall Street Journal explained in an article aptly titled California's Dark Ages. For years, the utility skimped on safety upgrades and repairs, which pumping billions into green energy and electric car subsidies to please its overlords in Sacramento. Credit Suisse, which... Uh, has estimated that long-term contracts with developers of renewable costs the utility about $2.2 billion annually more than current market power rates. Now, in large parts of California, if you want to keep the lights on during the blackouts, you better have a flashlight or a gas lamp. 21st century green dreams have led to 19th century realities. The Dark Ages, indeed, worse than the misguided green energy push and poor infrastructure, of course, has been the shifting forest management uh, strategy, mostly the result of misguided environmentalist ideology that turned large swaths of the state into a tinderbox. With a decline in the harvest came, a decline in the allied efforts to clear brush, build and maintain access roads and fire breaks, DeVore wrote in The Federalist. This led inexorably to a decades-long buildup in the fuel load. Federal funds set aside for increasingly unpopular forest management efforts were instead shifted to fire suppression expenses. One failure led to another as poor forest management has necessitated vastly increased budgets, For putting out the fires, which will undoubtedly continue to be a threat. Further, DeVore noted these fires pose more danger to people than ever before as middle class Californians flee the state's expensive urban areas to the more affordable but also more at risk parts of the state. So the current blackouts are ultimately the result of short term reality and long term dysfunctional governance. California is a wealthy state with vast natural resources and advantages near limitless potential for growth. It's why so many Americans have moved there over the past century. Despite those attributes, California's future success looks, well, a whole lot darker due to political dysfunction and the inability to address the growing problem facing the state. Let us hope that America's future is a lot brighter than California's. Hmm. Again, Jarrett Stepman on California's blackouts being self-inflicted and, of course, a mess. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi today said the House will vote this week on a resolution that would formalize procedures for the Trump impeachment inquiry. It's been learned that the vote will um, very likely take place on Thursday on the House floor. In a letter sent to Democratic House lawmakers, Pelosi Said this resolution establishes the procedure for hearings that are open to the American people, authorizes the disclosure of deposition transcripts, outlines procedures to transfer evidence to the Judiciary Committee as it considers potential articles of impeachment and sets forth the due process rights for the president and his counsel. Republicans for weeks have called for a formal House vote, challenging the legitimacy of the current framework for impeachment process in the absence of one. It's uh, possible, however, Republicans may still argue that this doesn't actually codify the impeachment proceedings. Just two weeks ago, Pelosi met with the Democratic caucus and said that they're uh, would be no formal vote, at least at that point, on the launch of formal impeachment proceedings, despite the GOP pressure. There's no requirement that we have a vote. And so at this time, we will not be having a vote, Pelosi said back on the 15th. We're not here to call bluffs. We're here to find the truth, to uphold the Constitution of the United States. This is not a game for us. This is deadly serious, end quote. Well, on Wednesday, the Democratic chairman of the Rules Committee, Massachusetts Representative James McGovern, said the committee will mark up the impeachment procedure resolution on Wednesday. Wednesday. As committees continue to gather evidence, prepare to present their findings, I will introduce a resolution to ensure transparency and provide a clear path forward with the Rules Committee uh, markup this week. This is the right thing to do for the institution and the American people. A little late coming, but the right thing to say. Pelosi, on the 24th of last month, announced the formalization of the impeachment inquiry into the president saying at the time that the president must be held accountable for his betrayal of his oath of office, betrayal of our national security, and the betrayal of the integrity of our elections. Now, that was before she had the whistleblower's complaint or the the, um, transcript of the audio. But nonetheless, the procedure began then. Forty-six minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Be back.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Fifty minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the second hour of today's program, we'll talk with Jem and Alan Fadling, co-authors of What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. Well, in July, Representative Andre Carson, a member of the House Select Committee on Intelligence, voted for the then most recent resolution calling for the ouster of President Donald Trump from office. I think it represents a larger, more important conversation that we need to have about what we're willing to tolerate as a citizenry from our commander in chief, political quoted the Indiana Democrat is saying at the time. What responsibility the commander in chief has to the electorate in terms of not fanning the flames of Islamophobia, xenophobia and outright hatred, end quote. Well, the Intelligence Committee has taken the lead role in the impeachment investigation of President Trump, focused on Trump's July 25 phone call with Ukraine presidential uh, president Uh, Zelensky, as a pretext, given the fact that out of um, the 13 Democrats on the Intel panel, 10 have called for impeachment long before that particular set of facts. 10 of the 13 Democrats on that committee discussed an impeachment inquiry, actual impeachment and the removal of or resignation by Trump well before the news broke of the controversial phone call. The Intelligence Committee has taken the lead role in the impeachment investigation focused on the. The July 25th call with Ukraine President Zelensky in which the two leaders discussed former Vice President Joe Biden, his son, Hunter Biden and a Democratic computer server. Of the 10, three Intelligence Committee members, Representatives Carson, Swalwell and Welch were among 95 lawmakers who voted to advance the July impeachment resolution sponsored by Representative Al Green. And that time it was about Trump insulting four first-time members of the House. The Green Resolution was tabled on bipartisan vote 332 to 95. So no go there. In September, as news of the Trump call with the Ukraine leader broke, Carson was eager to note on Twitter his past support for proceeding with impeachment, asserting it may be the only way to save our democracy. Congressional Republicans have criticized the closed door impeachment inquiry process being used by House Democrats and have complained about a lack of fairness, alleging Democrats have already made up their minds and aren't providing the president due process. Even before voting for the Green Resolution, Swalwell, who briefly ran for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination, announced his support for an impeachment inquiry in June. Impeachment is the most extraordinary remedy the Constitution affords Congress. As a former prosecutor, I do not have I do not take this lightly, but the president continues to put his own interests above the nation's. He is lawless. His relentless attacks on our rule of law and numerous efforts to obstruct justice. And it goes on. Well, Welch tweeted one day after his vote for the July impeachment measure, I have concluded that President Trump should be impeached. Pick a reason. We'll go with that. Republicans have been critical of Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff for fabricating the contents of the Trump-Zelensky call. After being criticized for it, Schiff defended his characterization of the call as mere parody. Schiff also lied to the media when he said his staff had never had contact with a whistleblower who revealed Trump and Zelensky talked about the Bidens, according to The Washington Post. It was not a firsthand account, and the Post gave them five Pinocchios. And while Schiff didn't uh, call for an impeachment inquiry before the Ukraine, Investigation, he did claim he committed. uh, His committee had evidence of collusion between Trump's presidential campaign and the Russian government. The report by Special Counsel Robert Mueller, the third, concluded there was no such collusion. Not every member of the committee who voted against the Green impeachment measure opposed an impeachment inquiry. About a month before the news broke of the Ukraine call, Representative. A Democrat from Illinois said in a statement that no president should be impeached unless clear substantial evidence of alleged behavior exists to sustain a conviction in the Senate. That said, we have now come to a point where we must engage in an investigation to not only expose wrongdoing and prevent it from happening again, but also to determine whether the current president engaged in behavior merited the beginning of an impeachment proceeding. Representative Jim Himes called for the start of the impeachment inquiry in June The statement came after the release of the Mueller report, which found no conspiracy between Trump and Russia, but neither accused nor exonerated the president of potential obstruction of justice. It did identify 10 instances in which Trump expressed to aides his opposition to the investigation, which shouldn't be surprising. Representative Mike Quigley first announced in May after the release of the Mueller report what the special counselor was saying is that the ball is in Congress's court. The president's unacceptable obstruction of legitimate congressional investigations and his abuses of power have left Congress with only one option. That's well, not exactly what Mueller said. It's somewhat speculative. But Representative Jackie Speer announced on CNN in May that she supported an impeachment inquiry into Trump, saying, I believe that an inquiry into impeachment is required at this time. Well, as rumors swirl that Trump might seek to fire Mueller, Speer tweeted in March of 2018, Mr. President, here is my red line. Fire Mueller and I will vote to fire you. Well, he didn't. Mr. Mueller, um, the report concluded based on testimony that Trump strongly considered firing Special Counsel. However, he did not do so. Consideration is not quite the same. Representative Joaquin Castro. Uh, told CNN in May that he supported an impeachment inquiry that same month. Castro tweeted it's time for Congress to open an impeachment inquiry after Mueller testified to the House Intelligence Committee in July. Representative Denny Heck out of uh, Washington announced his support for an impeachment probe. I am familiar with the political arguments against initiating an impeachment inquiry based on the findings to date, he said in a statement. Uh, That may be true. What is truer is that nothing less than the rule of law is at stake. In May of 2017, Heck made a comparison between Trump firing the then FBI director, James Comey, something that both Democrats and Republicans favored at the time. Um, uh, that day in the Watergate scandal, making the comparison which led to the resignation of President Richard Nixon. Well, it's a bit of a stretch to make the comparison, but in May, Representative Val Demings told CNN regarding the Mueller report, I believe it's pretty clear that the president made numerous attempts to obstruct justice. In April, Demings also made uh, Watergate comparisons, tweeting, In 1973, Richard Nixon purged the Justice Department in an attempt to fire the special counsel investigating him. Less than a year later, he was forced to resign. Well, if the president had actually sought to or uh, removed him, that might have been a fair comparison. But that's just the lineup of the members on the committee who long before the latest uh, allegations had said they believe the president should be impeached. Ten out of the 13 sitting members on that committee. Meanwhile, House Intelligence Committee chairman uh, Adam Schiff said the president's former national security adviser, John Bolton, is a very important witness in the House's ongoing impeachment inquiry into the president. Speaking on ABC News this week. Chief said Bolton has emerged as a key witness after hearing closed door testimonies from other administration and government officials obviously has He has very relevant information, and we do want him to come in and testify, Schiff said. The Democrat, however, noted that the White House probably will put up obstacles to getting uh, Bolton in front of the committee. My guess is they're going to fight us having John Bolton in. Closed-door interviews tentatively have been scheduled for Charles uh, Cooperman, a Bolton uh, deputy, and Tim Morrison, National Security Council senior director of Russia and Europe. Cooperman and Bolton have both left the White House. The Democrats have been investigating Trump's request that Ukraine conducts certain investigations and whether the requests were in exchange for military aid. Trump requested the probe in, on a July phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky. Cooperman interv- uh, Cooperman's interview is scheduled for today. Morrison is set for Thursday. If Morrison appears for the interview, he will be the first White House aide to testify, even as the president has said his administration would not cooperate. And the White House was alerted as early as mid-May, earlier than previously known that a budding pressure campaign by Rudy Giuliani, the president's private attorney, and one of the president's ambassadors was rattling the new Ukrainian president. Two people with knowledge of the matter tell NBC News. We don't know who these two people are. But alarm bells went off at National Security Council when the White House's top European official was told that Giuliani was pushing the incoming Ukrainian administration to shake up the leadership of state-owned energy giant Naftagaz, uh, the source said. The official, Fiona Hill... Learned then about the involvement of Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, two Giuliani associates who were helping with the NAFSA gas pressure and also with trying to find dirt on former Vice President Joe Biden's son, Hunter. Hill quickly briefed then National Security Advisor John Bolton about what she'd been told Individuals with knowledge of the meeting said the revelation significantly moves up the timeline of when the White House learned that Trump allies had engaged with the incoming Ukrainian administration and were acting in ways that unnerved the Ukrainians, even before President Zelensky had been sworn in. Biden had entered the presidential race barely three weeks earlier in a White House meeting the week of May the 20th. Hill was also told that the ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, a major Republican donor, tapped by Trump for the coveted post in Brussels, was giving Zelensky unsolicited advice on who should be elevated to influential posts in his new administration. The individual said one of them said it uh, struck the Ukrainians as inappropriate. Zelensky was inaugurated that same week, May the 20th, snapping selfies and giving high fives to the crowd as he made his way through the Ukrainian capital for his speech in parliament. Again, uh, this coming much sooner than was originally thought to be the case. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, we've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. And then in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll hear from Jim and uh, Alan Fadling, co-authors of What Does Your Soul Love? Eight questions that reveal God's work in you.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up this next segment, we're going to talk with Jim and Alan Fadling. The pair are the authors, co-authors of What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. We'll also take a look at what meteorologists who gathered this past weekend say our winter is going to look like. Spoiler alert, they don't really know. Well, Attorney General Bill Barr in an interview uh, defended the independence and integrity of the politically contentious probe being led by the U.S. attorney John Durham into the handling of the Russia investigation while taking a swipe at James Comey past leadership uh, of the FBI. This is just yet another investigation going on. Let me pause for a moment and list the people's business that's being done while all of this is happening. Yeah, that's that's about it. It was reported last week that the probe into the 2016 origins of the Russia meddling case has escalated from a review to a criminal investigation, a development that spurred Democratic um, claims that the department was becoming a tool for the president's political revenge. Secretary Barr speaking on Monday on the sidelines of a law enforcement event in Chicago rejected the claim. He's acting as Trump's personal lawyer, saying that's completely wrong and there is no basis for it. And I act on behalf of the United States. The attorney general said that. While he's assisting in connecting Durham with countries that could have valuable information, Durham is running the show. He is in charge of the investigation. I'm not doing it, Barr said, while describing Durham, a U.S. attorney from Connecticut, as thorough and fair and saying he's making progress. And by the way, he has worked for both Democrat and Republican administrations with great honors and high marks. Further, Barr took an uh, implicit swipe at Comey as he maintained current FBI Director Christopher Wray is cooperating. I do want to say that one of the reasons Mr. Durham is able to make the kind of progress he's making is because Director Wray and his team at the FBI have just been outstanding in support and responsiveness given to Mr. Durham. Barr said, as you know, I've said previously that I felt there was a failure of leadership at the Bureau in 2016 and part of 2017 but since director ray and his team have taken over there's been a world of change i think that he is restoring the steady professionalism that's been a hallmark of the fbi i really appreciate his leadership there well, when it was first reported that durham's investigation had involved had evolved rather into a criminal probe democrats claimed the doj was essentially being weaponized against trump's political opponents Well, General Motors' four-year deal will now be used as a template for bargaining with the uh, crosstown rival Ford Motor, the union's choice for the next round of bargaining, followed by Fiat Chrysler. We can confirm that UAW today notified Ford its plans to negotiate with us next, Ford said in a statement. As America's number one producer of vehicles and largest employer of UAW represented auto workers, we look forward to reaching a fair agreement that helps Ford enhance its competitiveness and preserve and protect good paying manufacturing jobs. a contentious 40-day strike that crippled GM's U.S. production came to an end on Friday as workers approved a new contract with the company. That may save a lot of time and heartache for others who are up next. GM workers voted 57.2 percent in favor of the pact, passing it with a vote of 23,000. 389 to 17,501, the union said in a statement. Many voted against the deal because it still has several different pay scales for workers doing the same job. Temporary workers can get permanent jobs after two or three years, depending on their uh, start dates, Uh, but they um, start at the bottom of the pay scale, so people doing the same work end up at a different pay. Again, up next Ford Motors, followed by um, Fiat uh, and their UAW workers. The U.S. Air Force's secretive X-37B space plane, you ever heard of the X-37B space plane? Well, it returned to Earth on Sunday after completing more than a two-year orbit. It's been up there for two years. The uh, uncrewed X-37B orbital test vehicle mission 5, sounds like a sci-fi movie, landed at NASA's Kennedy Space Center Shuttle Landing Facility at 3.51 a.m. Eastern Time on Sunday, according to the Air Force. The 780-day mission shattered the space plane's own record of almost 718 days in orbit, which was set by Mission 4 when it returned to Earth in May of 2017, according to Space.com. Mission 5 launched from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida aboard SpaceX Falcon 9 booster in September of 2017. The solar-powered, Space plane was designed to spend 270 days in orbit, according to the Air Force. Space.com noted that most of its uh, payload remains classified. The X 37B continues to demonstrate the importance of a reusable space plane, the Secretary of the Air Force Barbara Barrett said in a statement. Each successive mission advances our nation's space capabilities. The Air Force is planning to launch a sixth X 37B from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in 2020. I don't know if that's going to be part of the Space Force or what its role will be in that emerging branch of the U.S. Air Force. Well, a new film about free speech, No Safe Places, starring comedian Adam Carolla and conservative radio personality Dennis Prager, associated with Salem Media, had a pretty strong opening with the second highest ever box office gross for a documentary playing on just one screen. That's according to the movie's producers. The film raked in an estimated $45,000 on one screen in Phoenix, the production team said, adding that the only documentary that earned more from one screen on an opening weekend is Michael Moore's Sicko in 2007. No Safe Spaces examines the politically correct world of academia. Largely driven by the political left, Prager has called the film a wake-up call to the American people, claiming the left is trampling on free speech to satisfy its agendas. Carolla said the goal of this new documentary was simply to make people aware of how nuts it is on campuses and in the media when it comes to censorship based on feelings rather than facts. It's not a left or right wing thing, Carolla told Fox News this last Wednesday. We have people across the political spectrum in the film, including liberal CNN pundit Van Jones, who says it doesn't help his team to have young people who can't defend their beliefs. This is hurting everyone. End quote. Well, safe spaces, physical locations for students who feel victimized or offended have become increasingly common on college campuses. No safe spaces, a film about free speech starring uh, Carola. Um, had a strong opening weekend, and that was good news. In addition to liberal universities, No Safe Spaces also takes on censorship in China. In one scene, Carolla says that in China, you go to jail if you say anything nice about gay people. Another scene features a cartoon character singing about the First Amendment while mocking China. The documentary has a couple of risky scenes, considering China-owned AMC Entertainment is set to exhibit the film in several of its theaters early in the film's distribution pattern. The Hollywood Reporter noted, Corolla said the filmmakers weren't scared of attacking the communist nation, despite possible financial backlash. In "No Safe Spaces," Corolla and Prager travel the country, talking to experts and advocates on both sides of the aisle, touring college campuses and examining their own upbringings to try uh, to gain understanding of the threats. To free speech, the documentary features commentary from a variety of Hollywood actors, scholars, academics, political figures, media members, including conservative political commentator Ben Shapiro, attorney Alan Dershowitz, and actor Tim Allen. No Safe Spaces was released on the twenty fifth. is set to expand this week in Phoenix, ahead of engagements in San Diego and Denver on November eighth. Limited engagements are scheduled for Tampa, Florida, Greenville. Uh, North Carolina and uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina, following a wide distribution of the documentary the following week, so the week after November 8th. I'm really proud of this movie and hope the rest of the country will love it as much as we and our fans in Phoenix Dube, Carolla said, reacting to the strong opening. So, t- sometime in mid November, presumably, it will be accessible to everyone else who's interested in seeing it. Well, coming up, we're going to talk with Jem and Alan Fadling. They are the co-authors of What Does Your Soul Love? Eight questions that reveal God's work in you. It really is all about transformation and how God is the initiator and the completer of transformation, but how do we cooperate with that and what prevents us from moving in the direction that we really want to? So they'll be joining me uh, coming up in the next segment. And later in the program, we'll find out what the gathering of meteorologists, what do you call a gathering of meteorologists, a gaggle of meteorologists, who met uh, to talk about Oregon's winter. What might we expect in the days ahead? Spoiler alert. They don't have any idea. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guests ask several really important questions. Among them, what do you really want? What is your soul clinging to? And what's getting in your way? Well, in the pages of their book, What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. My guests, Jim and Alan Fadling, they outline eight key questions that offer deep insight into how we experience soul change. Now, the questions open the door to spiritual transformation, and they help us unpack where we're stuck, where we're in pain, where we're afraid, and much more. They also recall the path to joy and to the heart of God. Spiritual inventories and exercises in the book will guide you along with stories from both Jim and Alan's lives and their ministry together through Unhurried Living. It's a great book. We're going to talk about it here in just a moment. But first, let me introduce our guests. Jem Fadling is a founding partner of Unhurried Living, Inc., a nonprofit that resources and trains Christian leaders to rest deeper, live fuller, and lead better. A trained uh, spiritual director, retreat speaker, and podcaster, she enjoys serving as a guide with the intention of helping people encounter God in their very real lives. Alan Fadding is president and founder of Unhurried Living, Inc., a mission in Mission Viejo, California. He speaks and consults internationally with lots of organizations you would recognize. He's the award-winning author of An Unhurried Leader and An Unhurried Life, which was honored with the Christianity Today Award of Merit in Spirituality. He's also a contributing author to Eternal Living, Um, It reflections on Dallas Willard's teaching on faith and formation. He is a certified spiritual director. And the pair join us today to talk about their very important book. Once again, the title, What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. Jim and Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having us.
1: We're glad to be with you
2: let's begin with the title of the book what does your soul love talk a bit about the nature of that question and what it reveals about us when we're trying to determine how how does transformation happen and where do I even begin
3: well sometimes that question is helpful especially when uh, you might be in a dry place or maybe a dark place and sort of life has become a little more like a fog let's say there's a lot of metaphors in there mm-hmm. but um, it's when um, the the methods and maybe the practices that you've been using feel like they've dried up a bit. You can sort of come at it differently through the the filter of desire. What does your soul love to do? What do you love to do? Maybe answering that question can give you a new connection to God, maybe take you in deeper than you have been before
2: is the goal ultimately um, to experience transformation that is being directed by God or just uh, pursuing what I like to do, which is kind of a cultural um, recreation? Um, You know, what what do I really like to do and I'm going to pursue that?
3: Right. Well, I like to think of the verse, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So we assume that God is the one initiating this process. He is the guide in transformation. So when we're asking the and what do you want? It's not on that surface level mm-hmm. of just preferences, right? There is a way of learning and discerning to hear, uh, to look inside and to see how God has made me and what might be the ways, those ways that I can engage with Him. Yeah,
2: yeah. One of the things that you write about in the book is the fact that um, transformation is something that god initiates and facilitates we are participants in that process and it really grows out of an understanding of god's profound and deep life altering uh, love for us uh, help make the connection between his love for us and that transformation that we all long for but may not quite know how to how to <laughs> arrive at
1: yeah let me let me step in and just say i think it's really important to always remember that we don't change so that we'll be loved, Mm -hmm. but that we remember we're loved, and therefore we can change. In fact, love is the engine for the change that we are often hungry for, and and for that matter, the, the change God invites us to. God begins in love, and from that place, we then are able to enter into all the ways in which He would like for us to be able to be transformed. He's doing that work, and love is the engine of that work.
2: You write that sometimes we opt for outward change as a substitute for the inward change to which God has uh, been inviting us. In doing so, we escape a change in soul by choosing a change of venue. But usually the change needed is in our soul, not our setting. In the first chapter, you write about an invitation and changing from the center. You're not simply talking about superficial change where it's a change of venue and therefore everything uh, will fall into place. But you're talking about the interior as does scripture.
1: Yeah, that's really well said. I, I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that our lives would be better if something out there would change, if that person would behave better, or if that situation in my life were different. And we think that change out there will improve my situation. But the the change that God invites us to is a change in who we are. The the beautiful genius of Jesus is that he comes and he addresses the heart. This is his very first message. He calls out the word repentance, which some people have turned into a word that sounds like bad news, but it's the best news there is. I can change. And the genius of Jesus is that that change always begins at the center of who I am. You know, he he uses lines in the Gospels like, make the tree good, which is another way of saying, deal with the root system. Don't just deal with Mm -hmm. the superficial outside.
2: You write about um, uh, in What Does Your Soul Love, transformation as being different from perfectionism. This isn't a road to uh, becoming uh, perfect in my presentation and therefore more pleasing to God and transformed. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between the kind of transformation we see in Scripture and um, this desire that some of us have for perfectionism?
1: Yeah, I, I I call myself a recovering perfectionist actually. <laughs> so you can recover, you know, and, huh? <laughs> well, I say recovering anyway, you know, it's, <laughs> I'm on the way, but, <laughs> there you but go. I think what's beautiful about the, the transforming process we're in is that it is indeed uh, a, a journey. That the language even in the New Testament is is a kind of being transformed. Um uh, and, and therefore it's not something I arrive at in ten minutes or two weeks or two years. It's this lifelong continuing process. The problem with pursuing perfectionism is there's an ironic sense of God not being in the middle of it, because the minute I think I'm getting to some kind of perfection, I clearly am not using the sorts of standards God would be using to measure perfection. I've usually created some sort of artificial and likely a bit smaller version of perfection that I'm shooting for. Whereas when God wants to talk about anything like perfection, wholeness, holiness, he's always measuring that by things like love or joy or peace. And those are huge Mm -hmm. things that we can't possibly wrap our arms around.
2: Um, You're right. And I think this is so important. It can, uh, it can help to remember that we are not the prime movers in this transformation. The language of transformation in the New Testament, for example, is in the passive voice. Rather than being initiators of the action, we are responders to the action of another. We're being transformed rather than transforming ourselves. Now, that's a great relief, and it helps in our understanding of what God is doing in and through us. Yes, it
3: is a relief, isn't it? I mean, it's yes. be trans—be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So then, this begs the question: Are we open and aware about this process that is going on? If it is happening to us, um, there is still a measure of cooperating. Yes. And so, how can we grow to be people who listen to God to and to respond to this great initiation of love? and care, and the transformational journey. And we think these questions, there's eight questions, and of course there's more than that. Um, but these are at least that if you walk down the path of any one of them, you can find yourself on that transformational cooperative journey. Yeah,
2: yeah. Now, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few moments. Again, we're talking about the book, What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. And it may be only eight questions, but these are great questions to begin that journey that may lead to others that are also uh, useful to you. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments, so do stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Jem and Alan Fadling. They are co-authors of What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. It's a very practical book. It's not just asking a question uh, that's followed by Good Luck. I hope it works out for you. But they provide great resource to help you work through and think through um, how transformation occurs, and uh, it's just a, a great resource For that purpose, let me make sure I have both my callers on the line here. Now, this began something of an odyssey, an answer to a question that Jem, you were uh, seeking. You were asking yourself in a conversation uh, with uh, Alan, How have I remained on this path of my lifetime? What postures, what perspectives, what orientations kept me on the path? It was sort of an Ignatius of Loyola's looking back. Um, that uh, produced his uh, exercises. Can you talk a little bit about the beginning of this book and uh, in your uh, asking those questions, how you help others who may have similar questions in a desire to experience the transformation that God offers?
3: Well, yeah, what what initially happened was I was probably, I think, in my 40s. I had uh, been spending my life, uh, like most of us, wanting to grow, doing my best to cooperating with this process that we've been talking about, and I found myself up on a little bit of a of a vista point, and I, I liked who I had become up to that point, and I asked God, it really was a prayer. How did I get here? What went on? Because I'm a curious person, and I like process, and I, and I wanted to learn from that so that I could keep growing, and I do have a heart to help others. And so, really, I carried that prayer around with me for months, and I just kept saying, how did this happen? What was I doing? What were the common threads here? And it emerged as these, as these eight questions, and they weren't in the exact form that are in the book now, but the essence of each one of them was, were answers that came up over time. You know, the things that are common to all of us, fear and control and resistance and how vulnerable can I be and how much truth am I engaging in? And I, I, as we've been talking to people, we're finding out that people are really resonating with these. So I don't think I stumbled on anything brand new. I think God just showed me that the things that that come up in all of our lives are actually paths to growth. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to offer these to others um, and say, if you walk down these um, with an open, open heart and a listening ear, you too can grow.
2: Now, if the goal is not perfectionism or self-actualization or a change of venue, what ultimately is the goal in going through the exercise of determining what does my soul love?
3: So
1: I think... You know the I I I would almost call it the the Sunday school answer is we would say it's to become more like Jesus mm-hmm. uh, that the the model for which we are into which we are being changed is into the beautiful image of who Jesus is he comes to earth. He takes on a body like ours. He takes on a life like ours. He depends on the Spirit of God. He lives a particular way. And then He invites us to follow Him, and His Spirit enables us to do that. But what we find is, as we are following, there are things within us that get in the way. There are temptations. There are fears. There are other kinds of barriers. And part of the the presence of God in us at work is enabling us to Uh, overcome some of those barriers and make our way through them and move increasingly in the direction of being the kind of person Jesus would be if he were living my life now.
2: Mm. Well, let's talk about these eight questions. I'm certain our listeners are intrigued by what kinds of questions might these be and how do I go about not only just asking the question and sitting for a minute quietly, but really pursuing the answers and what they mean toward this desire to transform in the way that God intends. Talk a little bit about, maybe not all eight, but a couple of the the questions that will help us on this journey.
3: Well, why don't we
2: start with one
3: one of the hardest ones, maybe the pain. And the question there is, how are you suffering? And I think most of us would say that we don't like suffering. We don't like pain. And if something like that is happening, we want it to be over as soon as possible. But in my life, I had a very severe issue in my lower back with some nerve, nerve things, and it was the worst pain of my life. Mm. Now, while it was happening, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't. I did, in fact, want it to get over fast. But the process of working through that pain, which took probably about six months for a healing that felt like me getting back to my normal, um, within that, I met with God in a way that I think was unique to any other point in my life, and it was meeting Him in the pain. And I had been reading Mother Teresa, and she talked about engaging the suffering Christ. And how many times do you really get a chance to have empathy for Jesus as he went to the cross and bore all our sins and took on all of that pain? Well, when you're having physical pain in your body, for example, that's not the only kind of pain. But in this case, that was my example. Um, There's a way to engage God, I think, in a deeper way than just cognitively, Mm -hmm. and so being open to these kinds of things, such as pain, to be ways in which we can meet God at deeper levels.
2: As I mentioned earlier at the end of uh, the chapters, you offer opportunities to to go deeper and to really reflect in a way that's going to have an impact. Uh, for example, there are a list of questions that are titled, Be Transformed. And the goal of that is to draw us in so that we don't just become stimulated intellectually, but we really press in and, and go deep in a way that's going to afford the kind of transformation that God desires for us. Can you talk a little bit about Uh, how the the chapters are set up so that we do go deeper and it's not just an intellectual exercise?
1: Yeah, that's a good way to ask it. I think, you know, um, the reason we wrote the questions at the end and the way we wrote those Mm -hmm. questions were an opportunity to step a little deeper in. The the thing about these questions is um, it may be tempting to think that our goal is to read the chapter, ask the question, spend a few minutes, get an answer, move on. But the reality that we've found is that these are the kinds of questions you find yourself revisiting often along the way, like the question about fear, for example. I wish I could say, oh boy, I remember back in the uh, 86, boy, I had a real event with fear, and boy, I dealt with it, and I've never been fearful again. But my experience is that fear keeps coming back, and it becomes a place of encounter with God. And so, The questions at the end of the chapter and the questions that form the framing of each chapter are simply ways in which, places in which, to encounter God, to listen for God, to watch for God, and to grow in my uh, relationship with God.
2: One of your chapters is titled Resistance, What is Getting in Your Way? And I could easily rattle off a whole list of things, you know, the other people and circumstances and my employment and my husband, and, you know, you could list off external things that are getting in the way. But you encourage us to, again, go deeper in considering what's getting in our way. And more often than not, we discover at least some element of our own, um, I don't, I'm not even quite sure how to describe it, but our uh, getting in our own way.
1: Yeah, I think um, I used an image in, in that chapter that I'll share. But the, the thing that I learned is that the thing that gets in my way most tends to be me. Yeah, now, I don't like that fact, and I I'd like to sort of blame everybody else and and everything else that makes me feel a little bit better for a moment but it doesn't help me much in the journey of change. So I use this picture um, the example of my trying to exercise regularly and I'll be here in my house we live in southern california usually the weather's quite cooperative if I want to take a bike ride but there's this little voice in the back of my head that says oh I don't feel like that. Oh it will be a big hassle to put on all my bicycle clothes and Oh, I, you know, this, I'm just too tired. It's too late in the day. It's all these little, I don't feel like it's that kind of ring from the back of my head that end up, if I keep listening to them, end up feeling like this brick wall. And then the brick wall feels like I can never get through it. But the thing about a resistance is this. It's really more like if I lean on that wall, I discover the wall is actually tissue paper and it's painted to look like a brick wall. And just simply in the act of leaning through it, I realize I can move through it quite easily. And in fact, on the other side of that wall is God there inviting me into some new experience of His presence. So resistance is usually about the, the no that happens inside of me that gets in the way of the yes that my heart really wants to say.
2: Well, I wish we had more time to go through the chapters, but I would encourage our listeners, I hope they're um, they're intrigued, I hope they'll pick up the book and walk through this um chapter by chapter because i think it will be uh, as it was for me very helpful in understanding a, a bit more about myself and how I so often get in the way when I'd much rather point the finger outward uh, to others or other things. Again, the book is titled, What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. Jim and Alan Fadling, could I just ask you briefly to tell me a a bit, or tell our listeners a a little bit about um, your organization that uh, is having an impact uh, um, for leaders as well?
1: Well, um, yes, our organization is called Unbreed Living. You Mm -hmm. can, Find out more about what we do at unhurriedliving.com. And um, we basically come along leaders to help them rediscover the genius of Jesus' unhurried way of living and leading. A lot of times leaders are so frantically doing so many things that they, they believe God's called them to do, or that they want to do to honor God. And we think that if, if leaders can slow down just a bit, maybe walk at the pace of love instead of at the pace of You know, the frantic pace of our culture, Mm -hmm. that maybe they'll have a greater sense of how God is coming alongside them, how God has called them, how God is guiding them. And so we do a lot of work with leaders around the world in that spirit.
2: Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for being with us today. I so appreciate it. Thank you. you. God bless. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments to wrap things up.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. If you're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice show. Well, in a few months, the Pacific Northwest could see big winter weather events. Well, that's according to meteorologists or Could be just another average year. In other words, they don't really know. Local and regional meteorologists get together on Saturday morning for the 27th annual Winter Weather Forecast Conference at the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry in Portland. And the goal is to discuss weather predictions for the upcoming winter season. And forecasts are still up in the air. Uh, One of the key points uh, the presenting meteorologists made was that this winter won't see a La Nina or El Nino weather pattern, but rather a neutral pattern, if that word applies. While La Nina and El Nino patterns mark colder or warmer than average temperatures, neutral years are somewhat, well, a wild card where anything can happen, including big storms. So that could be on the horizon or, well, not. Well, these are the years we can get big events, could be big lowland snow events, could be a damaging windstorm, could be a flood event. That's a quote from one of the meteorologists with Portland National Weather Service, Tyree Wild. Any of these can occur, and they have occurred in neutral years. Well, Wilde said uh, 60% of Portland's snowiest winters have happened during neutral years, though sometimes neutral years bring minimal or no snow at all to the metro area. So we don't know anything more than we did before the meeting. Well, Wilde said generally he estimates that uh, snowfall will be likely in the lowlands and there could be some flooding possible for the season. Another meteorologist uh, with COIN, that's Kelly Bayern said she estimates uh, some early snowfall for the season in the Portland area. So you have one meteorologist and another. Well, uh, Kelly went on to say, I think we will see early snow and a very active December and January. Uh, also, um, uh, Bayern says uh, also lots of mountain snowpack and a great ski season that will probably be open by Thanksgiving, probably, or maybe not. Regardless of uh, If a large-scale storm hits, Wild says people need to be prepared. Prepared for what? Not entirely sure. No matter how we end up for the winter, uh, we've always got to be prepared for that one storm. That one storm that's going to turn our day sideways or our week sideways or whatever happens or doesn't. So I hope that clears things up for you as you're anticipating the uh, winter months, which aren't that far away. I went to a store earlier today and it was all Christmas all the time. No, we haven't had, you know, that holiday that's coming up, All Saints Day. And no, we haven't had Thanksgiving, but they're thrusting winter upon us. And the meteorologists say we have no idea really what's going to happen. So there you have it. Be prepared. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with June Hunt. She is a prolific author uh, and the host of Hope for the Heart. It's just amazing to me. It seems like every month or so we get some new publication that they have put together I had the opportunity to spend some time with June Hunt in Minnesota for the um, conference that I uh, helped to host uh, just a few months back. In fact, it was in June, I believe. Uh, so I had a chance to meet her and spend some time uh, with her. Just a delightful uh, woman. Again, very prolific. Her latest is Bullying, Bully No More. Now, there are those who are bullied and then there are those who do the bullying. We're going to talk with her about this publication. They're always very small and easy to read very approachable. So if this is a subject about which you'd like to learn more, it's published by Hope for the Heart, and she'll join us here tomorrow. On Wednesday, we're going to have the interview that took, well, two bookings and two cancellations uh, to arrive at. And that is Michael Barone will join us, how America's political parties change and how they don't. Um, We have two major parties, but there are lots of others out there as well. We'll talk with Michael Barone about that. We had a cancellation for Thursday. We're working on some things. But then on Friday, I'm looking forward to a bit of a fun Friday program. It's always a delight to take a brief look away from some of the more serious stuff. And quite frankly, there are some serious things coming down the pike, as I mentioned earlier in the program. Nancy Pelosi is weighing in on whether or not they're going to take a formal impeachment vote, what really should have been done. Uh, at the beginning. It also illustrates that the Republicans are resonating and that might be the next thing to happen. Anyway, we'll uh, talk about that with Michael Barone, how America's political parties change and how they don't. And then on Friday, uh, we'll take a look at the headline news, but then the lighter side of the news will be the bulk of the program. So I hope you will join us. Also want to remind you, Jem and Alan Fadling, and Jem is G-E-M, by the way, Jem. They're a married couple. Uh, What does your soul love? Eight questions that reveal God's work in you. If you didn't have the opportunity to hear that interview or hear all of the interview and would like to go back, you can always go to the podcast, kpdq.com. Look for the Georgine Rice Show and there's a section there for podcasts of this and other programs that have gone before. So check that out. Uh, You may also be interested in the uh, ministry that the two of them are responsible for helping um, those who are involved in ministry to slow down to a pace that can sustain them over a longer period of uh, time. So that's uh, something worth checking out as well. I want to thank James Blind for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
0: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast.